turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. We're going to be reading a significant portion of God's Word there, beginning in verse 26, regarding the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And once you turn there, if you would uh, keep your finger there, or bookmark, uh, if you will, and then turn in the Heidelberg Catechism, which is found in the back of the uh, hymnal for those that are visiting with us on um, page 878, you'll find our lesson for the day, Lottleberg Catechism is a humanly authored document, but it is uh, inherently biblical in many respects. It's biblical in that it follows the outline of the Book of Romans, uh, sin, salvation, service, guilt, grace, gratitude. Uh, the three parts, main parts of the book of Romans are the three parts in the outline of uh, the Heidelberg Catechism as well. And also, uh, it's biblical in its pedagogical method, its teaching method, question and answer. If you're a good student of the Bible, you'll recall how many times Jesus asked questions of his hearers. And the Catechism uses that teaching method, often referred to as a Socratic method by ed educators, um, but question and answer was used by Jesus as well. And of course it's biblical because as it's a time-tested document that has been proven by uh, Christians seeking to be Bereans that the teaching of the Catechism is in fact what the Scriptures teach as well. And we're looking at um, question and answer 39 uh, this morning. And I'll ask the question and ask you to respond with the answer. Regarding Jesus, is it significant that he was crucified instead of dying some other way? Yes, by this death I am convinced that he shouldered the curse which lay on me, since death by crucifixion was cursed by God. And now uh, we confirm that by looking and reading in the scriptures, Luke 23 beginning at verse 26 through to the end of the chapter, what you hear in all that follows is the word of God. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. 
But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Then when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw his tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. Four points to the sermon this morning. First of all, the prayer of Jesus. Secondly, the promise of Jesus. Thirdly, the passion of Jesus. And fourthly, the people at the cross. The prayer of Jesus, the promise of Jesus, the passion of Jesus, and the people at the cross. Crucifixion was a form of execution that the Romans had learned from the Persians. It was also practiced earlier in Phoenicia, Carthage, and Egypt. By the time of Christ, it had become the favorite method of execution throughout the Roman Empire. In Judea, it was used to make public display of rioters and insurrectionists. Josephus is the Jewish historian, and he tells of the Roman governor crucifying 2,000 men to squash an uprising. Titus crucified so many in 70 AD that no wood was left for any more crosses, and there was no place to set them up. By the time of Christ, Rome had crucified more than 30,000 people in and around Judea. It was a common sight at the time, and it was a constant reminder of Roman rule and brutality. But for all its commonness, it raises the question, does it not? Then what is unique and uncommon about the crucifixion of Jesus. And that's the burden of Luke as he writes his gospel account to answer that question. The main theme of Luke is that Jesus is the savior of the world. And crucifixion in chapter 23, the penultimate chapter of his gospel account, is the climax to the story that he tells. And it concerns salvation. It's seen in the prayer of Jesus. It's also seen in the promise of Jesus, as we'll see in a moment. One commentator said this. He said, Now if I am shown Jesus suffering the penalty of sin, and if I am assured nonetheless that in him there is no sin, and if I find him offering me salvation from sin, 
It takes no great effort of the intellect to grasp that what nails him to the cross is the sin from which he promises to save me, my sin. Its effects have been diverted from me to him. And there, not it is true in so many words, but in the whole scheme of Luke's storytelling is his theology of the cross. Consider with me then what we read here, particularly first about the prayer of Jesus. Look at verse 34, if you will. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. J.C. Ryle, eminent commentator, beloved commentator, said, and I quote, It is worthy of remark that as soon as the blood of the great sacrifice began to flow, the great high priest began to intercede. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Look at verse 34. They cast lots to divide his garments. They're not ignorant of the fact of their wrongdoing, but they're ignorant of the enormity of their crime. They're blinded. They're spiritually insensitive. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, the man without the Spirit does not understand the things of the Spirit, for they are spiritually discerned. And there they are gambling at the foot of the cross, blind and insensitive to what it is that is being accomplished. And yet, and yet, Jesus bleeds and pleads for them and intercedes, Father, forgive them. One more proof of his infinite love to sinners found in that prayer. None are are too wicked for him to care for. None are too far gone in sin for him to take an interest in their souls. This is a love that surpasses knowledge. The vilest of sinners may come to him. No matter what your sin may be, no matter how heinous, no matter how wicked, no matter how gross, no matter how detestable, no matter how criminal it may be, can find forgiveness at the foot of the cross, can be cleansed and made new by the blood of the Lamb, can find new life, be born again by coming to this Jesus, the Savior, here on Calvary's cross. But secondly, note the promise of Jesus. Verse 43. He said to one of the criminals, you'll remember these were anarchists. These were not run-of-the-mill criminals. They were not petty thieves. They were not shoplifters. They were anarchists. They were insurrectionists. They were rioters. They were people who sought to turn the order of Rome upside down. But he said to him, verse 43, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What a beautiful portrait of salvation by grace alone is contained in those words. Justification by faith alone. This man has done nothing to merit salvation except hang on the cross next to Jesus. He has no hope of doing anything to earn Christ's favor. 
He has absolutely no ability to do anything, to commend himself to God, to do anything to gain his favor, to do anything to merit his attention, except cry in his need to Jesus. And yet he's given full assurance of eternal life, free, full, and immediate forgiveness. Today, you will be with me in paradise. The sovereign grace of God in salvation is seen here. The one repented, the one criminal repented, the other was hardened. Here, here is Jesus, and here is one criminal, here is the other criminal. What, what accounts for, for this one? Repenting and turning to Jesus in mer- for mercy and need, and the other one hardening and cursing Jesus in, unpe- in penitence and unbelief. Both saw Jesus, both heard everything that was transpiring. Both of them are wicked equally, both of them are equally in need of forgiveness. But don't you see, God's sovereignty is never intended to destroy man's responsibility. Someone asked Spurgeon once, Sir, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? Spurgeon's answer, friends don't need to be reconciled. It's both and, not either or. Before going on to the next point, it's important. I was talking to somebody about this, I don't think here, but recently. There's one deathbed conversion in the Bible. It's the thief on the cross. There's one deathbed conversion so that no one would despair. Up until the moment of translation into glory, there is hope. There is a chance. I've stood by the side of dying men and dying women who were uncertain of their destiny when they closed their eyes in death and said to them, Pray, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus will answer that prayer, and he will take you to be with him. Pray, pray, turn to the Lord. It's never too late. There's one deathbed conversion in the Bible so that no one would ever despair. But there's only one that no one would presume. Presumption is not faith. Thirdly, though, look at the passion of Jesus as he's mocked hanging on the cross. Verse 35 And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. Verse 36, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine. Verse 37, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And then verse 39, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Jesus, the Lord of love. Jesus who came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus, who came preaching the kingdom of God, hangs on the cross, taking the place of sinners, and is mocked 
vilified, ridiculed. When they hung people on a cross, they hung them there naked. Naked to exaggerate, exasperate the shame of the death of a cross. Public humiliation. It would often take days for a crucified person to die. Nailed to the cross, the weight of their body would fall down on their, what's this called? Sternum? What is it? Diaphragm, thank you. Fall that crushed their diaphragm so that they couldn't breathe. That's why they had to push themselves up to catch their breath. As if with every breath the life ebbed out of them, and as the drops of blood came from their feet and from their hands, the slow, ignominious, horrible, humiliating death that took place on the cross. But my friends, this is where our catechism lesson becomes pointedly significant. For all the horror, for all the humiliation, for all the suffering, for all the pain that a crucified individual underwent, it paled in comparison to what God was doing to Jesus. And here, here, is where the crucifixion of Jesus stands in all its unique glory, distanced from, differentiated from, distinguished from the other 30,000 people that had been crucified at that time. Is it on the cross, as our catechism lesson says, he shouldered the curse which lay on me since death by crucifixion was cursed by God. Turn with me, if you will, to Deuteronomy 21. Deuteronomy 21. Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall remain at night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. These are not the curses that you and I hear on the subway or on the streets of New York City when God's name is blasphemed or foul uh, language is used. Not that kind of curse. These are the curses that are spoken of by God in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. The curses of Almighty God in His utter detestation of sin, disregard of Himself, and disobedience. The curses of heaven will fall on those. And Moses writes here that that is what happens to a man hung on a cross. He's cursed by God. The thunder blows of God's wrath come down on the brow of Jesus. The hammer of God's anger comes down on the head of Jesus as he hangs there and bears not just the pain, not just the suffering, not just the humiliation, but the curse of God. His anger is wrath against your sin and against my sin. That's what occurs in his passion. 
Why is it significant? What differentiates Jesus' crucifixion from the other 30,000 that were crucified? By this death, I am convinced that he shouldered the curse which lay on me. Crucifixion was cursed by God. On that cross, Jesus took the wrath and the curse of God which is due to you and which is due to me upon himself and paid the penalty for sin by being cursed by God. I don't know if you've ever asked yourself the question, who killed Jesus? Who killed Jesus? You might read the account and say, well, it, it must have been Pilate. He passed sentence. We looked at that last week in our catechism lesson, right? Pilate was the executor of Roman justice, and he was the one through whom uh, that Jesus was killed. You might say it was Pilate. You might say it was the Jewish people who conspired together to bring Jesus before the bar of justice and have him crucified. You might say it was the rabble of the crowd, the very same crowd that cried out, Hoshienu, Hoshienu, save us, as he entered into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. And days later they were yelling, crucify him, crucify him. You might even say, in light of what I just said moments ago, it was me. If he died for my sin, then it was me who killed Jesus. Who killed Jesus? None of those answers are the right ones. Look at Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, we're beginning verse 3. He was despised and rejected of men, a mare in sorrows, and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken. There's that substitutionary penal atonement. Jesus pays the penalty. The wages of sin is death. Jesus dies in the place of those who deserve death, even though he's perfectly innocent. You say, oh, well, then that's the answer to the question. No, 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 read on, read on. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us sheep. Verse 8, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It wasn't Pilate. It wasn't the Jews. It wasn't the rabble of the crowd. It wasn't you and me. God killed Jesus. And in those words, in that truth, we see the amazing love of God, which we'll consider in our next sermon this morning. God put to death his own son and cursed his own son so that mystery of all mysteries, 
the son cries out to the father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For sinners, for sinners, the Lord put his own son to the curse of the cross. The pain, the suffering, the humiliation turned back to Luke. There he is between two outlaws. We're told in verse 44 that darkness comes over the land. An indication of God's judgment being executed. We're told in verse 45 that the veil is torn in two. It's not an insignificant detail. Remember that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. And the Holy Spirit includes this detail for us to note and for us to take account of. Why is it important that the veil is torn in two? Because as long as the veil is there, it's an important reminder, a constant reminder, that sinful man is unfit for the presence of God. But at the crucifixion of Jesus, it's torn from top to bottom, signifying that God himself has removed the barrier between sinful man and himself. We're told that there was an earthquake in Matthew chapter 27. You don't have to turn there. We don't have time. The earthquake is a graphic display of divine judgment, and it comes at the culmination of Christ's work on the cross. It's like a divine exclamation point on the crucifixion that God's anger, that sin cost his son so much. And at that earthquake, the dead are raised, proof that Christ has conquered death, not just for himself, but for all those in him, prefiguring the great and final resurrection. No, the passion of the death of Jesus is unique. Some of us many, many years ago went to see that Mel Gibson movie. Uh, what was it called? The Passion of Christ, right? Some of us may remember going to the theater together and, and see that. I remember walking out of the theater and asking those with whom we saw the movie, why, why, why was that different from all the other thousands of people who were crucified? Don't misunderstand me. The portrayal of Christ's death crucifixion, scourging was gruesome, it was, it was violent, it was, it was terrible, terribly graphic. But coming out was like thousands of people had the same treatment. If you have ever seen that movie, you will note that the first frame with which the movie begins is what we read from Isaiah 53. Apart from the citation of that verse printed on the screen, you would never know that there was anything different about the death of Jesus from the thousands of other people that were crucified. You see, it can't be portrayed by film. It has to be proclaimed by the word. Faith comes by hearing and that by the word, not by seeing movies and DVDs and videos. It may move your emotions, but it cannot change your heart. We have been born again, Peter says, by the word into a living hope that shall never perish or fade, kept in heaven for you. Well, Tempest Fugits, and that brings us lastly to the people at the foot of the cross. We read about them here. 
And in looking at those assembled at the foot of the cross, we see portrayed for us by Luke those who may and those who may not benefit from the salvation that Jesus accomplishes on that cross. If you still have your Bible open, look to verse 28 to 31. The prayer of Jesus, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never cursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us, for if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? This is Jesus' prayer, but it's a prophecy of doomed Jerusalem. Doomed Jerusalem. Representative of all who refuse salvation. Do you remember how Jesus came to the city of Jerusalem? And he wept over it. Because he knew that in a mere generation or two, the Roman armies would come and they would slaughter the population of Jerusalem. Being once again a foreign army used by the hand of God to execute God's justice, wrath, and condemnation on his own unbelieving and disobedient people. Josephus, again the Jewish historian, records that the the streets of Jerusalem ran knee-deep in blood. So great was the slaughter of the Jewish people. Jesus sees that coming, and he weeps, and he prays. All those who refuse the salvation of Jesus. All those who, like Frank Sinatra, in that battle hymn of autonomy, I did it my way. Do not approach eternity singing that song. Today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, turn from sin. Trust in him or else judgment day awaits on the horizon of time for all those who refuse the gracious, loving salvation of Jesus Christ. But then also at the foot of the cross are those who will benefit. Those for whom the offer of Jesus, Father, forgive them, is freely given in that prayer and the promise. Verse 47, the centurion, certainly this man was innocent. Eyes of faith to see Jesus for who he really was, the innocent dying in the place of the guilty. The criminal, verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Joseph of Arimathea, verse 51, he had not consented to their decision and action. He was looking for the kingdom of God. You go on in the story to the book of Acts, and there are those who in the hearing of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, you kill the son of glory or cut to the heart and cry out, what must we do to be saved? Repent and be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. What is it 
that for thee, this group, these groups of people that made that crucifixion so attractive, so magnetic that they, they were drawn to it irresistibly, as it were, by the Spirit. For those with eyes of faith, they saw in that cross the love and mercy of God for the worst of sinners. And they couldn't stay away. Is that you, my friend? <laughs> May God give you eyes of faith to see that Jesus shouldered the curse which lay on me since death by crucifixion was cursed by God. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we come to you and give you thanks for the cross. While historians have recounted the horrors and the humiliation of that cross, we look at it with adoration and thanksgiving seeing in it your love, seeing in it your mercy, seeing in it the one who gave himself for me, who deserved to die under your curse. Make us today and ever and always thankful for your goodness and grace. We ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen.